coming up on Venture Voice. I want to make sure that everybody who works in our company know that they're capable and that they're special and that they're talented and that they're important. And if you invest in people like that, with that kind of attitude and that kind of spirit, it's amazing what they do. Not everybody has that sort of passion for it. I certainly do. I really do. Our company gets the benefit of that passion. This is Greg Gallant. Welcome to Venture Voice. As an entrepreneur scaling my business myself, I think a lot about the mission of a business beyond just its financial success. So I want to talk to Mark because he's a real mission-driven entrepreneur. He's been on a decade-long mission to lift people up by bringing good jobs with health insurance and other benefits and strong salaries to the inner city, giving opportunities to people who might not have otherwise gotten them. And he's been very successful. He scaled his first company, Ryla, to thousands of employees and sold it for $80 million at age 50. He owned a majority of the company. It was really enough to make him all set. But he feels so strong about the mission, he started another company, Chime, to do a similar thing, to bring these opportunities to hundreds and thousands of new people in the inner cities. I found this talk really inspirational to hear what drives Mark, what he's up to. It was also powerful to hear about his experience as a Black man growing up and starting a business in the deep South of America. I hope you find this interview as inspirational as I did. Mark, welcome to Venture Voice. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for having me. Excited to visit with you this morning. Tell me about your first job, Mark. At a college or even during college, what was your first experience working? First experience working, really. I'm born and raised in Portsmouth, Arkansas, so I got to start working at a very young age. I think my first job probably was around, you know, 12 years old or something. I used to go with my uncle and he shined shoes, actually, in a barbershop. And I would go with him and, you know, and help him in that, you know, doing that as a kid. And I just always remember my entire life working. You know, it's a part of, part of breathing for me is, you know, I've always worked. Were you actually shining the shoes or you, you'd support him in doing that? Yeah, absolutely. He taught me how to do it. He had a stand in a barbershop in the main mall. There was a barbershop that was there. And ironically enough, it was with us being African-American, the patrons in the barber shop were all, you know, majority white people, basically white men that we were servicing. Yeah, but he taught me how to shine the shoes and I would help him to handle the volume and the number of customers that came through. Do you remember what lessons you got from that as a 12-year-old watching your uncle and interacting with customers? I don't know. I've told my story so many times and I've never told this story. And, you know, and as we're talking about it now, I'm sure it's been instrumental in shaping me as an entrepreneur, me as a professional, me as a person. You know, it had all the elements. His business was definitely not working for someone. It was entrepreneurial. And it was definitely serving, you know, a set of customers that came through the barbershop that, you know, as a result of getting a haircut or whatever. And I think the social interaction, as we talk about it here live, shaped my view on me and how it is that I approach things professionally that I do today. I've never wanted to feel one down. 
And I'm sure that experience is, again, as we talk about it here now, impactful. You said you never wanted to feel one down? Yeah. You know, I've always had this thought going through my professional career that in the the situations that I've had the, I think, uh, fortunate benefit of being in, I've never not been in a position where I haven't felt or been made to feel one down. And when I say one down, I mean less than, not equal to, you know, not on the same scale, not same talent, whatever those, you know, descriptors are. But I've always felt like, um, you know, that there's been, um, you know, an air for the people that have been in control that I was somehow, you know, not at their level. Basically, one down. How would you say that that ended up being a driver in uh, in a lot of your ambitions with building your own businesses? One thousand percent. And there's a song that Jay Z and and Pharrell have that's a real old. A lot of folks that would listen to this and wouldn't know that I necessarily they would maybe associate that with being my playlist. But there's a song that they have called "So Ambitious," and there's a line in one of the songs that says. The motivation for me is them telling me what I could not be. Big driver for me. Great lyric. Sounds like your uncle made a pretty big impression on you. Tell me about, you know, what his relationship meant to you and how that evolved over the years. My uncle was, um, he was older and, you know, definitely more traditional in what he had experienced in his life growing up in the deep south. He grew up in uh, Magnolia, Arkansas, deep, deep south. I just think his approach to folks in the majority because of that was very deferential, even subservient, that had the impact on me of really hating that, <laughs> if I could say it, say it plainly like that. Uh, and definitely a driver. As, you know, again, as I'm thinking about it here now, I never really even talked about it. I, I, I can relate to other things along life that were things that represented bias and bias against me that I would probably, you know, give more credit to than that. But that probably was where it was the most obvious for me from a business standpoint, and actually even socially, because, you know, the way the conversations and the attitude and the feeling that I now remember having at those early days, it's uh, it's crazy to think about it. It's kind of emotional even. And tell me about the progression of your jobs. Like, when did you feel that you'd kind of made that shift from, you know, from the feeling that you got from being at the barber shop to the feeling that you have today? Or, or, or did you always feel kind of the, the same way? You know, I've not ever felt like a victim. That's not, you know, the approach that I've had. I've taken in life. I don't think my, my mother was a single mom who raised me and my brothers and my sisters ever you know, taught that, you know, that you just had to understand your circumstance and deal with it and rise above it, basically. And so I've never felt victimized. But for sure, I've always had um, an affinity for the underdog and wanted to make sure that those, particularly those that I know were as talented as maybe those that are that, that have an advantage, that they would have a chance, myself included, you know, feeling like I would want to try to get to the, you know, the next level because. I knew I was as, as talented or as good as whoever it is that I might be competing with. I can't wait to get into how, how you built your business. But first, just tell me, what were the other jobs you had throughout being a kid and then through high school and, and maybe college too? 
Yeah, so I, you know, again, very modest and humble beginnings. You know, I grew up in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and I worked every job from the barbershop job that I've mentioned to fast food. I remember working at Hardee's and at Sonic. I remember there was a gentleman in our community, uh, Mr. Hogue. He uh, sold watermelons. So we would go to the watermelon patch. We'd get in his truck. He'd take a group of us over to the watermelon patch, and we would harvest or pick watermelons and fill his truck up with watermelons, and he would come back and sell them as fresh watermelons to the community. I remember that being a job. I mean, so I did everything. Later in high school, I worked for a plumbing supply house, and I learned all about, by accident, learned a lot about logistics and how, you know, uh, the supply chain worked. I mean, I can talk about it from a supply chain perspective now. Then I was just the kid working on the dock at the plumbing supply house where trucks would come, the inventory would come, we'd have to keep track of the inventory, all the steps in that. You know, as I hindsight look back on it, were definitely learnings for me before I went away to college. And then in college, I had the benefit of, you know, I went to Wilberforce University, which is it's our nation's oldest historically black college that's privately owned. One of the hallmarks of, of the school was a co-op program that they have where you had to, as a requirement for graduation, you had to do three internships. So they were on a trimester system and they facilitated relationships with most of the Fortune 500 companies. You would interview and once you're selected, the idea would be to go work for that company and to do all of your co-ops there and then ultimately to go to work for them. I had two different companies that I did my co-ops with. One was Weston Hotels out in LA. I went to Century Plaza Hotel and went through the whole management rotation as a college student before my senior year. And before that, I was with General Motors. General Motors had the same rotational program where um, my first two co-ops I did with them with Central Foundry in Saginaw, Michigan. So I got some real good experience, you know, in college leading up to graduation and then, you know, working, you know, full time. My first job out of college was working for what then was People's Drug Stores and now at CBS in uh, Washington, D.C., What was the uh, transition like from working your early jobs and kind of seeing more entrepreneurial endeavors like the one you had with your uncle to working for a big corporation and working in corporate jobs? Again, I I never really reflected on the experience there in the barbershop because I, I didn't see it as a staple. I mean, not until today as we're talking about it that I really even, you know, think about that being educational, inspirational at all. In fact, I, I viewed it as, you know, it was when I was a kid, I just worked in a barbershop in a, in a job that wasn't that meaningful, shining shoes, you know, so never really attached significance or importance to it before this conversation. In hindsight, you know, I could see that everything was dependent upon my uncle for success. And well, the success of the place that he had his business established in the barbershop, you know, with traffic coming there and all. But really, at the end of the day, it was really about him and what he put into it that was going to be the difference. And I think that is what separates entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial experiences than corporate settings. When I look at my experience at Dunham Bradstreet, which was the last job that I had um, before starting my own company, you know, essentially everything's figured out. You know, when I started my first business, every little decision that needed to be made, I had to to make and put a process in place for it. In a corporate setting, that's just not how it is. Most things are already figured out. 
and you have to fit into it. And a lot has to go into it in terms of effort and all, but a lot of things are figured out for you and nothing in an entrepreneurial setting. Well said. And, and let's talk about your experience when you got into Dun & Bradstreet. And I think it's really interesting because there are some entrepreneurs who just famously drop out of college and start a business. And there are a lot of people who work for a corporation and dream of starting a business and you're proof it can work both ways. But tell me first, like, how do you come to Dun & Bradstreet? And I think a lot of people don't really know what Dun & Bradstreet is beyond like me knowing I once got asked for my Dun & Bradstreet number on a vendor form. But but what, ex what exactly is Dun & Bradstreet and how do you end up uh, coming there? Yeah, so Dun & Bradstreet, what they do, they're basically, it's business information that they have as their primary focus. You know, and they collect that data and then they parse it out and sell it in a variety of ways. I got introduced to Dun & Bradstreet when I was married, my wife was accepted into a doctorate program at the University of Arizona. She was studying to be to get her a PharmD, doctorate in pharmacology. And so we moved to Tucson, Arizona for her to, to attend school. And I just needed a job. When I first went there, it was right when cable was starting to get popular. And so I was able to get a job selling cable door to door while I really, you know, searched for a professional job. And I saw the ad for Dun & Bradstreet. It was for a business analyst. It said, do not apply in person. And that's exactly what I did do. I went into the, I looked it up and went into the office. And when I went in, the receptionist, there was a manager who heard me talking to the receptionist about the opening. I mean, it's just a fate thing. And she heard it and they were trying to fill a class. And the way that it worked in Dun & Bradstreet, once you got hired, they sent you away to California for some training. And they were just about to send this cohort to California for training that next week. I was called back that same day for an interview. Uh, she brought me back right then to interview. And I got the job. And I was December 7th, 1987. I remember the day. What was going through your mind where you're like, you know what, I'm going to show up in person? Because it just left too much to chance is how I thought about it. And I thought I could, you know, play ignorant about don't show up in person. And I would rather take that chance than to get my resume in the middle of hundreds or maybe thousands of other folks. You know, I, it was a calculated risk that I decided to take. So I went into the office and, uh, and it worked out. Well, tell me about your 14-year uh, your career there. What do you... Uh... How'd you rise through the ranks and what would you learn along the way? I started out as a business analyst in their call center in Tucson, Arizona. And I learned how call centers really operate. And it was a very competitive environment because they were, you know, measuring and monitoring every single thing that we did and comparing you to those that were in the same job. And those it was a very promotion oriented type situation. They hired a lot of folks right out of college with the idea that they would move them through the ranks. And that's how DMB was building up their management team. And so I saw that and I poured everything into it, you know, to try to be a top performer. I started that job December 7th. And by June of the following year of 88, I had gotten a promotion. They were going to promote me from Tucson to, out to LA. And it was right in the middle of my wife still working on her farm D. And we'd learned some things about that program that if she, you know, it was going to be hard for her to get her license there and reciprocate anyplace else. So we just talked about it. And with her full support, we decided to take the opportunity and we put her school on hold. And she we moved to L.A. in June of, of 88. And I just kept competing. 
and doing well at various levels in DMB. And they just kept moving me through the ranks. We wound up moving, you know, about 11 times in my career, in that 14, 15 year career there at DMB. They moved me from LA, several offices in the Southern California area for a couple of years there. And then the finally moved out to corporate headquarters, which was in Murray, home, New Jersey, in a staff position, which got me a lot of exposure corporately, moved a couple more times to D.C., to Atlanta the first time, to North Carolina, to Chicago. I was moving all around. And finally, you know, the last stop was I had a chance to, a DMB did a joint venture with AIG, and I was offered up to that joint venture, which had me based in Atlanta and traveling back and forth for that position in New York. When the opportunity came about that my mentors in the business, Tal Phillips was his name, was responsible for DMB had made a decision that they were going to outsource everything that they were doing internally. In fact, they went with, with IBM. I saw it as an opportunity to be one of the partners on a smaller scale and start a business. And I talked to him about it. And, and so, you know, I started uh, the first company called Ryla which was named for my children, my son, Ryan, and my daughter, Lauren, to pursue a partnership with Dun & Bradstreet to start my own business. That's how I I got launched to being an entrepreneur. Before you jump into the entrepreneurial experience, what did you learn at um, at D&B about uh, managing teams, leading people? Because you obviously had to work in their corporate framework, but you still had influence yourself as a manager and executive. I learned a lot throughout the years from the first job of being actually on the phones in a call center and talking to business owners. You know, my job as a business analyst was collecting data. You know, that data was put into a report, which is a snapshot on a business that then gets used for, you know, their credit profile. Like you mentioned, you know, for credit worthiness, you know, the DMB is is essentially the credit report for a business. So I learned all of that, the foundational things about the inner workings of a business which really helped me. But more than that, I had an opportunity. One of the, the jobs along the way, I mentioned Tal Phillips was a mentor of mine. I worked in his, in his organization. The DMB was set up regionally, and there were a lot of cost centers around the country. He placed me in an opportunity to run the Greensboro, North Carolina call center. It was definitely where the light went off about if I ever were to be in a situation to have my own business to do some of the things I was able to get done in Greensboro that I would take advantage of it. What happened in Greensboro, Greensboro was a complete turnaround situation where, you know, there was some performance issues and some things that needed to get shored up. And I was able to go in there and try it. They allowed me to try just about anything. And we tried a lot of things. It was just very inspirational for me from a mission standpoint for what would be the mission for any company that I would start. So we were impactful. I think as a, a leadership team with the folks that worked there, which was primarily minorities and mostly African American women. You know, our standings in terms of rankings in the company went to the top of the list. And I was it was very um motivational for me, inspirational. What were the uh, specific actions you took to start to turn around this underperforming call center you were assigned? Yeah, so one of the key lessons that I learned in my mentorship with the relationship with Tao was how it is that you needed to relate and deal with people, that people are your most valuable and precious asset and that they will get you through and to whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish as a leader. It still drives how I go about business today. 
I was able to shed all the things that a new manager might have going into an opportunity where your uh, your instincts are to dive into the business aspects of everything. And I didn't do that. I did the exact opposite of that. So for like the first week or two, all I did was do one-on-one interviews with everyone in the center. I wanted each person in the center to feel like they had a personal connection with me and that I had a personal interest in their success. And that was the single most important decision and step that I made and taken over that opportunity in Greensboro. I learned and got a chance to meet everybody in the center. And I think right out of the gate, established a rapport with them that was going to allow me to guide and coach and direct them in a way for us to be successful. It was all about people management. And it is the core for how we do things today with an emphasis and a focus on the people that, that work for us. And so tell me now when you started your first business, Ryla, you had that opportunity to go out. Like you'd hinted at before, there are so many decisions to make. And I'm sure when you spend over a decade in corporate America where you just don't have to worry about payroll and what the corporate logo is and a million things that the company does for you, like what was day one like? What was what was it like just to figure out what's the right first step to take? I don't know how to tell you, just challenging. I've never been the person that had this burning desire to be an entrepreneur. I just never thought about things that way. And it was really more opportunistic. You know, it was the fact that I had a chance to be an entrepreneur and to get started the way that I uh, had, uh, you know, with, you know, with the DMB opportunity. All I did was to take one day at a time. You know, as things came up, we would make the decision on how to deal with that, you know, and I tried to hire the right person up front, the right people for the core things that I knew that we were going to need. I had an association with one young man down at Bradstreet that I knew could help me from a systems admin standpoint. So I approached him about would he come and join. I had another uh, lady that was a show Virabin, uh, who's still with me today. When I started Ryla, he came on. I was able to, to convince him to come over and join the team. He's still with me now in the third company today and almost 20 years later. Together, it's a testament to to how things have worked for a core group of people that have been doing this for a little bit now. And then I had um, Lexi Gombeski, Lexi DeRozier, I think is Lexi's name now. But she came over as a, a second employee. She was also from DMB. I knew I could she could help get us established around training. So my first key decisions was around the personnel. My wife joined our team. She didn't start out with the intent at first. And then I convinced her that she was going to need to help me for the skills that she had, you know, professionally. And so she's, we've been together as partners in our business the whole time. She was there from the beginning, helping to, you know, kind of guide my thought about what we would do. In fact, we walk, you know, we have sort of a daily walk that we do. And I remember sharing with her that this was an opportunity that was before us and that I wanted to take advantage of it. And that meant me quitting my job, which had cared for us and our family. And so I was going to need her support uh, with it. And I remember her not really doing anything but supporting me. You know, I think there's a trust and a, and a confidence that I wasn't going to put our family at risk with the decision, any decision. So she supported from the very beginning. And her first thing was, is I think you need to make sure that you provide health care for all of the people. And let's try to see if we could uh, make it 100 percent coverage. That was our first real decision that we made as a business was that we were going to provide 100% health care for the people that worked in our company. 
Wow. So you weren't thinking, how are we, what's our sales strategy going to be? Where's our office? It's that we're going to get healthcare for the employees. That's right. Why was that so important to you? The whole idea and inspiration for what this was the success that we had in Greensboro. And my wife was, you know, lived every step of what I was doing in Greensboro and, and you know, and the experience that I had there and knew that that was a driver for me being interested in this. It was all about, you know, how we could leverage an opportunity to make an impact, to do good. You know, for sure, it was going to be a for-profit business. We had to care for our family. But at the end of the day, that could be driven by what we did and how we treated the people that worked in the company. How do you uh, finance that business uh, at the start? Was it personal? Was it loans? Was it friends and family? Complete scrappiness and bootstrapping affair for a lot of years, meaning that I financed the business any way that I could. I mean, I relied on staffing companies where I could really float my payroll. You know, I would hire the folks that were going to work for us through a staffing agency who would then give us terms, which would allow me to bill and get the money from our clients to then pay them to receivables financing, you know, selling our receivables and, and paying a fee for that and getting a, a it was any scrappy way that we could do this, trying to negotiate better terms up front with our clients so that we could get paid on a more immediate basis than what would be typical. We were successful in the first company to raise some seed capital. We went, um, we were able to, to raise money from Sustainable Jobs Fund, which is a double bottom line and impact fund. They were investing in companies that were going to create a lot of jobs. And that was our model. We were creating a lot of jobs. And so we, uh, Sustainable Jobs, you know, invested about a million dollars with us to seed capital, which we needed to use to buy the furniture and fixtures and equipment and to have just a little bit of working capital to get out of the gate. That's how we got started. It's amazing as I look back in hindsight that we were able to pull that off. It's just amazing. Yeah, I'm sure being at the scale you're at now, it's harder to imagine uh, doing things so scrappily. Yes, sir. How long did it take to get to profitability or being cash flow positive or just to get to that that point where you didn't have to worry about, you know, about the clock ticking? I truly don't know that we ever really fully achieved that to where there was full capitalization in our business, where there wasn't a worry about cash flow. I mean, a lot of that is the nature of our business, which is, you know, has a, a healthy appetite for cash in that we're labor intensive. You know, we hire a lot of folks that we have to pay immediately. And most of the folks that we do business with big companies have terms that where you have to have upfront cash to make your payroll before you get paid by them. You know, so the nature of the business, you know, has a real cash dependency that we've always had to be focused on and cognizant of. Even today, until today, we just closed on the 29th of October with a, a $30 million round of financing with Brown Brothers Harriman. It has the impact of really recapitalizing the current business chime and helping us to be in a position to really execute on a growth strategy that we think is very promising. So it sounds like the business model, one of these business models where the more successful you are, the faster it grows, probably the more the cash demand is. That's correct. That needs to go into the business. That's absolutely, absolutely correct. Because the dynamic is, it's labor intensive and you have to pay people, you know, the labor that generally has, has to be done before you're paid. You know, that just causes a need for cash. I ask as someone who's been through cash crunches myself. How do you sleep at night or how do you go about reconciling yourself with the idea that 
you have this debt and, and sometimes cash you need to find to pull off. So even when things are going well, you know, you have to keep finding more cash. Like how do you manage psychologically for yourself? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And one that I think those that have entrepreneurial thoughts or, or inclinations should consider because it is a huge responsibility, particularly in a business that, you know, has a huge labor component to it, like what we do. That responsibility that you shoulder and have to carry to make sure families are cared for and that they're paid is a big one. I'm blessed and fortunate that, you know, my outlook on life and business is fairly optimistic. I always feel like things are going to work out. I'm naturally built that way. Between that and I lean a lot on faith. I'm a person that believes in God and I trust and pray that the decisions that I'm making are, are going to be the ones that are going to lead me through, you know, the things that need to happen as far as decisions in our business. And so between that, having a resilient spirit, making solid business decisions, I've been able to, to keep my sanity. Let's finish the story on your first business, Ryla, I guess with a, with a name like that, if you name it after your kids, you have to make it work. And you did. That was kind of the point, you know, um, it's a daily reminder why it is that I'm doing this or why I even thought that it would be, you know, a venture that was worthy of taking. You know, we raised the money from SJF that put us in a different place where we could start to really now function as a business. We'd grown up a little bit. This was like early stages. And, you know, there was another fund, uh, Frontier Capital, that looked at us at the very beginning. They were growth-oriented private equity fund, and we were too early stage for them. But they kept in touch and watched me over the, the years. And we got to a place maybe you know, four or five years in where it was time, you know, to raise more capital. And I was in touch with them and they seen that we had done all the things that we had said early on and made an investment. They came in and was interested right away in, in making an investment. They also had an investor, a private investor who kind of followed a lot of their deals, who was the former chairman of Wachovia Bank at Crutchfield, who came in at the same time they did. Frontier came in for $5 million. Crushville came in for a couple million and, and we raised seven million in that round of financing. It really kickstarted us. I mean, we were maybe, you know, 16 million or so in revenue. We got the investment. The next year, we grew to north of 100 million in one year. Like just tremendous, fast growth. The capital that we'd raised uh, was <laughs> immediately gone. And we were in a, in a situation where we really needed to recapitalize the business again after a couple of years. And uh, so we established a process with the bank out of Richmond, Harris Williams, and they went out and ran a process for us. It was well subscribed and we wound up getting in the process that led to the ultimate selling of the business in 2010 to one of our competitors, Alorica, West Coast-based company. As you were scaling from just a couple million in revenue to up to a hundred, how did you have to change your leadership style as CEO? And so I'm a firm believer that, you know, keeping things simple is the way, particularly around culture. So to the decision of healthcare being the primary kind of leading decision that we made, you know, starting the company that we never really lost our mission, you know, and what we were trying to do, which, which was to make an impact uh, primarily for the people that would work for us, the predominance of people were from the minority community that worked for us. And so we never lost that. 
we had four simple rules. The goal was to try to create the best job that anyone that ever worked for us had ever had. So we wanted to create the best job that you've ever had, is what we told the people who came on. For us to be able to accomplish that, there was four things that they needed to do. Come to work every day, come to work on time, do the job as you have been taught, and to have a positive attitude. And we focused on those four things. They were like the thing. The positive attitude was really the central point of all of the four. And understanding that we were trying to create a positive environment for anybody who worked there. And uh, so we never wavered from that. And we did little things like, for example, to this day, you know, we try to schedule me to go to every training class that we have in the business to make that personal connection, you know, relying on the experience of Greensboro and the success that we had then, knowing that the, the main tenet was connection to people and them having someone in leadership. And in my case, the CEO, owner of the business, being very much interested in them enough to be able to, in their early days of being an employee in our company, getting a chance to interact with me and me telling them how they mattered and what our company was going to try to do around investing in them. Those ideals of what what has always been, you know, who we've been as a business in any of the businesses that we've had. And we've stuck to those very core, simple ideals. By the time you sold uh, Ryla, what was the revenue and the employee headcount? Uh, so we'd grown the business to about 130 million, but on a run rate for 200 million. So in other words, we had signed business that once it came to fruition, it would be over 200 million. So very significant growth and seven locations, somewhere around 3,000 or so people. And what was the uh, acquisition price? We were about 13 in EBITDA and about a six multiple, 80 million before we sold it. For. What portion of the business did you still own by that point? We were still in a, in a control position in the company. So this was like a real, I imagine a really life-changing event for you in terms of just your personal wealth and liquidity and, uh, and all that. Uh, yes, it was definitely, it was definitely a pivot point for us. Yeah. And what did it feel like? There are so many entrepreneurs slugging out day to day who have almost no liquidity. Did you change anything in your lifestyle and did you change at all how you thought about yourself? No, I don't think so. I think the, the folks that are around me would would see very little difference in our life and our family's life before and after. We as a family enjoy nice things, vacations, live in a comfortable house and all that. But we're grounded in you know, in being good and decent people that that have altruistic spirit and that, you know, we feel like any blessing that's been given to us is so that we could support that for somebody else. And I think the evidence of that is my children. If you look at how my children live and lead their lives today, I think that would be the description, that they're trying to make an impact and to do things that are meaningful and helpful to others. How old were you when you uh, sold Ryla? 2010. I'm born in 1960, so what is that, 50? So about 50, you, you sell it for enough to put you know tens of millions of dollars in your personal bank account and surely never have to work again. You could have retired, become a philanthropist, but you started other business. What led to you getting into business again? Or as I understand it, acquired and then kind of retooled it? Yeah, I just think that there was, I said at the beginning of this, all I've ever known in life is work. And so now I get to continue to do that and do that with meaning and purpose. I mean, that's kind of the driver. 
I'd gotten a call after a couple of years. I really hadn't, I wasn't doing anything after selling the company for a couple of years, except for helping out around town, around helping other entrepreneurs or whatever. I served on the board of my alma mater. I started to do things and helping there and, you know, a few schools and just trying to do what I can to help. Yeah, I got the call from the previous investor and they just said, look, let's look at another opportunity here and put your team back together. And that's what I did. We bought a company together. Now, just moving back to the decision to sell your last company, what led to the decision to sell? And while you were making that decision, what were you thinking you'd be doing after you sold it? The decision to sell it, you know, we had private equity in our business and it was the right time to sell that business, you know, from their perspective, maybe from me as an entrepreneur, and I could have kind of continued on with it. But, you know, as it turned out, I mean, it wasn't a bad deal. I, I look at everything that, that happens. It happens for a reason. You know, quite honestly, we had investors in the business and it could have been, in my opinion, been even better for us from a value standpoint as a as a family than what it actually turned out being. That's not sour grapes or anything. I'm just saying it, it could have been. And I learned a lot in that process. And so, you know, still having a, a desire to make an impact and I think feeling like there was some room for us to even be in a better position financially put me out in a place where it made sense. How did your current company, Chime, come to be? When Frontier and I got together and we brought in a third investor, which was you know, Magic Johnson and Ron Burkle, who had a side fund out of, um, out of LA, they got into our deal. And so when we bought E-Verifile, once we got in, I had an opportunity with one of my former customers to stand up an operation with them in the call center space and effectively get back into that business in the middle of the business we bought, which was E-Verifile, which was more of a vendor management background screening company. And uh, so we took that opportunity on and we set up a separate customer service division called Chime, or actually it was E-Verifile customer service and later became Chime. After we made a decision, once we did that, we started to get more and more business and it was a good chance for us to divest out of E-Verifile and have our full management team go and just get back into the business that we knew, which was call centers and outsourced call centers. And so we negotiated a deal to take the contracts with from E-Verifile that were in the call center world and to start Chime. And so that's what we did and took the whole management team over to Chime and renamed E-Verifile CS Chime, Chime Solutions. What's the scale that Chime's at now in terms of, again, revenue, headcount, all that? Yeah, Chime is going to be exponentially better than what Ryla was in terms of what I think we ultimately will achieve in top line and, and in value. We're way ahead of the pace for what was happening there where we are now. You know, our model here, we did some things with intention, like we wanted to go into underserved communities where there was talent and opportunity for us to do what we were trying to do from a mission standpoint, but also put ourselves in a position where we could serve our clients at a higher level. So we put the first center in South Atlanta. It's just been a wild success here. South Atlanta, Morrow, uh, Clayton County was high unemployment here. We took an old JCPenney's and an old shopping mall and repurposed that the JCPenney's into a state-of-the-art call center, put 1,500 jobs in here, very successful, and thought that model should be expanded. So we established a corporate goal of creating 10,000 jobs around the country you know, talking to our customers and, and new customers about placing outsourced work, work that they outsource today with us 
and put it in places where, you know, it could have impact. And so it gives these major corporations a chance to have impact in communities for where it is that they're already investing in spending procurement dollars. So we're in the middle of this trying to create 10,000 jobs around the U.S. The first stop outside of Atlanta was Dallas. So same model, south part of Dallas, high unemployment in a redeveloping mall, the Redbird Mall. We have a a thousand seat call center in there. And then we leverage a relationship with one of our existing clients to take some space down in Charlotte. And so we're just looking now to continue that and hopefully we'll get, you know, to 10,000 or better here in the next year or so. What do you think entrepreneurs and other CEOs need to know about creating jobs in underserved communities? I imagine a lot never think to open up offices in areas like that. How, what's your advice to other CEOs on, uh, on you know, following your model and opening up in those kinds of communities? They should check it out because there's so much talent. And the reason that the communities are really underserved doesn't have anything to do with the quality of the people that work there and their ability to do quality work. It's a result of underinvestment. The only ingredient, the only thing that's needed for those communities to, to thrive is investment. And so that's all we've done is invested in the people and in the assets in the community. And, you know, all of our customers today are referenceable customers which means that our people are doing the work. So it's just a, you know, a bad uh, misunderstanding that people have that there's no talent and that there's just trouble in communities. It's not, it's not our experience at all. And do you find you have to do anything different opening up in an underserved community versus opening up in a, um, or, you know, already wealthier community? I mean, to be quite honest, we have to do the easy but hard things to do. You have to care about the people. You have to break through where, you know, a lot of a lot of situations you have folks that haven't had the benefit of anybody investing in them or their community. And so you have to break through some of that and, you know, establish a bond and trust that people know that you, you know, really in earnest are trying to do things the right way. The intent is for there to be a good outcome for everybody. It sounds like from your experience at the, the barbershop with your uncle, the, that their race dynamic left an impression on you. How did you find that played out both in your corporate experience first and then in your experience as a, a business owner and CEO? I just think uh, stereotypes are ever present in relationships and in levels of interaction at all those levels that you just mentioned. And what it's done is motivated me to try to to tear down those stereotypes and to provide examples of when there's opportunity, there's, you know, excellence. And there's, you know, I I was talking, I'm in the middle of of writing a book right now, actually at the end of it. And I think we should be done by the end of the year. And hopefully, you know, early next year, it'll be out. We're calling it the Lazarus effect. You know, one of the things when I was talking, been talking through and writing this book, I just look back in history and industries now that are dominated by persons of color and how those industries before excluded that community of folks. Now, so if you just think about sports right now, I mean, it's in my lifetime, you know, that certain sports that, you know, people of color could even mainstream play, much less, you know, be the dominant factor and the main source of revenue and, you know, the source of attraction for them. It's the same thing with business. If you invest in and understand that there's talent, 
then the same dynamic can play out with business, I believe. And right now, what I'm trying to do is to be a catalyst for an understanding about that. I really like for people to know that there are folks that can think. They're not just athletic and, you know, can run, shoot or jump, whatever, which we have. We're fortunate and blessed to have folks in our community that do that at a high level. But there are, are also folks in our community who are thoughtful and smart and bright and that with the right investment, the right attention, the right opportunity, that they can thrive at the same levels as, as what you see entertainers and athletics and, and those where we've had success as a community. You can see the same thing with business. That's a powerful message. Yeah. How have you found it interacting with other CEOs who are who don't have this baked into their DNA? Uh you know, I'm, I think a lot of people are doing soul searching right now and thinking about how they transform organizations that maybe haven't thought much about, you know, this dynamic, challenging stereotypes, et cetera. Have you had a lot of those conversations with other CEOs? And do you have any advice or places to start for people who want to really start exploring this? I know I haven't had a lot of extensive conversations with folks about it. You know, we've been kind of heads down on trying to do what we can and be the example in a real way versus, you know, a lot of this talk about things. I just want to show folks, here's what happens if you do this. You know, a lot of our corporate partners understand this and really like the model of, you know, creating jobs domestically on the one hand, creating them in these communities on the other. And the fact that there's some utility for them to talk about that and that they're they're supporting you know, not only a minority-owned business and and our company, but also the people that work there and where they live. I think we're getting a lot of traction. And I think what that's going to lead to is them having a positive experience and a positive outcome from a business perspective that will have the thought about it be less altruistic and supportive, I don't know, like a philanthropic approach to making these sort of decisions to actually having it be driven by the fact that this is the best business decision that we can make, which is my goal. That's really what I want to have play out. I want, you know, corporates and those that are making buy decisions to know this is the best buy decision that I can make. It happens to have some good attached to it that our company can attach to. But at the end of the day, this is a great business move for us to make. What's your pitch around, uh, you know, I think when a lot of people think of call centers, uh, as you said, at DMB, they thought of as a, a cost center. And there's this kind of drive to think, how do we make it as cheap as possible? Let's outsource it to a, a country where the cost of living is a fraction of what it is in America. Or if we do it in America, let's avoid paying health care and pay the absolute minimum how have you found you've been able to stay competitive with paying a, a competitive wage, uh, you know, above minimum wage wage and providing health care and just doing it in the U.S. where it might be uh, three or four times the cost of doing it in the Philippines or, or another country like that? Well, I think companies are smart and they can understand the economics. It gets beyond just the labor arbitrage, but, you know, the, the whole customer satisfaction experience and the downstream costs that are associated with an offshore or nearshore relationship, when you start to put all of those into the equation, then it all of a sudden becomes a smaller uh, difference or gap between what they could pay for a company like ours that's paying a meaningful wage, living wage, and providing benefits for our people. You know, you take a lot of the, you know, the ancillary cost out of it, it starts to be 
more competitive. And then, you know, companies have to live behind what they say, which is that they want to be good corporate stewards and that they want to be supportive of, you know, things that happen domestically, you know, with job and job creation and investment in communities for the people that buy their products, all of those things. Here's a chance for them to, you know, to make good on that. So all of those together make it, you know, not as a compelling you know, option to go offshore or to, you know, to take the work out of the country. And I'm just trying to highlight those things, you know, in our model. I just want them to consider those things, to have it be a good business decision all the way around, which I think, you know, we've been able to to do. And you sound, you know, you take such a people-centric approach, I imagine, with the pandemic and people needing to uh, avoid physical presence, that could seemingly run counter to it. Uh, how did you handle the pandemic and the, uh, you know, the restrictions on how many people could be in the office? We did think just about the safety of our people. We also needed to provide continuity for our customers and you know, live up to our commitment to them. And the way to do that was to facilitate our folks working from home, work with all of our customers to, to have them uh, know that we could do this uh, safely and securely and stay within the guidelines, protocols that have been established for us doing business with them from a security standpoint. And so we were able to put a technology solution in place and we moved, you know, most of our people home. We have a couple of clients because of the industry that they're in. It doesn't allow for that to happen. And so because we have 90% of the folks at home, we have 100% of the capacity available. So small subset of people in each of the centers was easy to accomplish from a social distancing and from a safety and security standpoint. So that's how we're operating today. Uh, did you ever have a work from home policy before the pandemic or was this the catalyst? We never did. We, over eight days, were able to figure out how to do this and to get everybody home. And now that you've done this, uh, you know, what's your takeaway? Like if the pandemic were cured tomorrow magically, would you say, everybody come back in or has this shifted your thinking on the need for physical presence in the workplace? I think there will be a, a hybrid. I think we've learned a lot and I think it's going to give us a heightened sense for the things that we would do in terms of practice around health and cleanliness and, you know, keeping things, you know, sterile and all of that in a people-centric environment. I think we will have a heightened sensitivity about that. And I think in the end, there are a lot of benefits that you get from people being able to work from home for those that are challenged for whatever reason, you know, around transportation or that there's any number of issues that make, you know, the convenience of working at home, working at home attractive. I think we'll wind up post pandemic in a hybrid where we'll have some folks at home and some folks in the, in the brick and mortar. What are some of the other day-to-day -day things you'd mentioned that you join the training sessions in your daily schedule? How do you make sure that all these now so many more employees than you can probably know the name of, how do you make sure they all know they matter? I think that one interaction that I have with them in the training room is authentic enough that it makes everybody understand that they have a personal connection with me. I think we leave each one of those with people feeling that way. I honestly do. And then it's just the things that we do as a business to support you know, our folks on a day-to-day -day basis that are um, support for the fact that we care. You know, we have something called Chime University. Chime University is really aimed at giving our folks a chance to participate in classes that we facilitate that have to do with personal development and helping them to do certain things to develop. 
you know, we just recently put in a component around home ownership. We know that, you know, stable housing is a big driver of, you know, financial success and how, you know, family moves forward. We have a component in there that's helping folks to learn about what they need to do with their credit. What are the, the kind of the things that are important with the um, approval process for achieving home ownership? And we're focused on that. We just recently, just last week, had a big conversation with the bank that we're working with them on a program that they have that will really accelerate this. We want to try to get as many of our people that work for us in a position where they can say and call themselves a homeowner as possible. But those type of things are, are the things I think are the answer to your question. Well, beyond the typical employee benefits here, you're actually trying to get your employees to own homes. Yeah, absolutely. That and just to learn generally different things about how it is to be a professional, how to improve their, how that they think about things. There's mindfulness classes that we have. There's all sorts of things that we're doing that are focused on the individual and, and much less about the company. Great. And going forward, what's driving you now? Do you have like a goal in terms of how big you want to make this company? How do you think about the impact you want to make with this company? Well, our corporate goal right now is 10,000 jobs around the country. And we'd like to make and exceed that. I mean, I think that's where we're focused right now. If we do that, you know, something called the multiplier effect that, you know, for every one job that's created, there's three other jobs that come from that in the same community. You know, if we create 10,000, that's 30,000 jobs that got impacted. That's big impact in some communities around the country. So we're after that. Mark, your story is really powerful, and uh, I'm sure you'll hit that goal in no time. Thanks so much for coming on and sharing it with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Hopefully, I was able to clearly get it out and that people can get something from it. I appreciate your interest in our business, and thanks for having me on. Thank you. That's my interview with Mark. I hope you enjoyed it. I got a lot of takeaways from this interview. For one, as an entrepreneur, it's so easy to get caught up on the strategy, technology, customers, and often we forget to think enough about the experience of our own team, of our employees. Yet at the end of the day, if you're one CEO, one entrepreneur, and you have hundreds of people working for you, you yourself can do so little. It's empowering everyone who works with you to feel great and to come to work every day and put in their all is really where all the leverage comes from. And I love how Mark stays focused on that. It's also a reminder to me that I think most successful entrepreneurs don't do it for money. And Mark's a great example where after his first company, he definitely had enough money to just kick it and take it easy after age 50. And yet here he is showing up every day and getting back to it and building a new company. But after all, what's the purpose of life? We got to do something for society. And this is a reminder that starting a business, creating great jobs is a wonderful mission to have. Let me know what you think of the episode. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Gregory, simply at Gregory. I signed up really early, so uh, you don't have to remember my last names, just at Gregory. Go to Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Please, that will make a huge difference for people finding this show. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.